Yes, we do serve a faithful God. Well, it's summertime, or at least uh, it's June, and that's summertime to me. And it's going to be a great summer of fruitfulness for the Lord. And so I always like summer personally because I have my summer attire. I take my tie off. But um, today we're going to uh, finish our story on the prodigal son. Let's go to Luke chapter 15, if you would, please. The prodigal son story is the greatest short story ever written. There is incredible drama in it. It is so clear, so concise, amazing characters that we can all identify with. It is entertaining. It is uh, amazing in that uh, anybody can connect to it. And there's certainly no doubt to what the Lord was wanting to communicate. If you'll take the off the back wall, please. We're going to talk about uh, parables with power today, the story of the prodigal's son. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage. And Lord, I pray that today you will just collect these amazing group of people. And Lord, uh, just uh, make us an army like Israel's army, Lord, that uh, won the victory in Nehemiah's day. And thank you, Lord, that uh, you do have the enemy uh, in your sight, and you've got the victory for us. And we'll thank you for what you'll do today. Give us your mind, your wisdom. Teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Now remember, when we come to Scripture, there are rules of interpretation. If you're a person that likes uh, words, uh, you will know that that word is hermeneutics. And that's not the study of Hermon. That is uh, the biblical definition of interpretation. You have to take it, uh, what the actual words mean, the, the literal meaning of the words, that's one rule. Another rule is to take the context, you, uh, you know, read the whole passage, that's one other rule. Another rule is uh, all Scripture compares with Scripture. You can't just build a doctrine out of one verse in the Bible, and so uh, that's another rule. But a often overlooked rule is the uh, the historical viewpoint. And that's why it's important to know history. And in that regard, uh, we're actually uh, owing to uh, sometimes extra biblical help, especially of the day. And so I think that really is important as we come to this story. You need to remember that this is a Middle Eastern story. It is a story that took place in a village. Everybody would get this story. Now, we get it to a point. And yet, we don't get the full impact of it as these false teachers were. So imagine they're all here. Jesus is looking them in the face, and he's saying, gentlemen, I would like to tell you a story. And that in itself has got to be an amazing thing because here's these learned men who have memorized, in many cases, much of the Old Testament. They studied it from the time they were young. They knew the Bible. Uh, at least they knew what they thought it meant. And uh, here they were, they were educated, uh, they were uh, uh, influential, they were leaders in the community. And Jesus takes time to tell them a story. And a powerful communicator, our Savior is, he looks to them and he says, I'm going to tell you the story about a, uh, a man who lost a sheep. And uh, he had a hundred sheep and they'd say, okay, nobody has a hundred sheep unless he's you know, has the whole village's sheep, and this is important. That makes his responsibility even greater. And he lost one sheep. You don't just come back saying, ah, I lost a sheep. 
No, you're not just responsible for your own. This is a big thing. And so you will make sure you find that sheep and the shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And so we found that uh, in the first part of Luke 15, we have a shepherd to lift us because that shepherd put the sheep on his shoulders and carried him home. A shepherd to lift us. And then he told the story of a woman who had coins. These were very important coins, probably a dowry or uh, could be um, uh, basically her social security system in case her husband died. They would wear them around their neck, very valuable. Um, she would always have it. Also could be just a very important thing to her because of its memories. But whatever the case is, this is a coin and she lost one and they would do whatever they could. And once they found that coin, they had a party, a great celebration. And thank God for the, for the light and the broom, because God sweeps away stuff in our spirit, and He enlightens uh, things uh, with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and He becomes uh, a spirit to lead us, a shepherd to lift us, a spirit to lead us, and then today, a father to love us. And so Luke chapter 15 could be summarized in those three little titles there, a shepherd to lift us, a spirit to lead us and a father to love us. Now, last week, we found that the prodigal son story, very clear into four categories. First of all, the ruin. How did this guy go so bad? How did he get so far off? And then we found the return. He came back home, but we left it there. And now we ask the question, how will the father react? I mean, the son comes back. But what is going to happen back home? And what's going to happen in the village when this rebellious, dastardly boy who had snubbed his own family, who has turned his back on the community, what would happen when he came back home? How did the father react? Now, in this story, remember, and really throughout this passage, the father is God. So if you keep that in mind, that one basic fact, uh, maybe put it at the beginning or something, uh, that'll kind of help solve everything. And so the ruin, the return, and now the third part of the story, the reception. The reception. Now what would happen to this defiant, sinful, self-serving, ungrateful young man? Would he be welcome? Oh yes, and hardly so. When there is genuine repentance not just a surface regret. He will be received, and he was received openly. Let's look at verse 20, and let's read that together if you would, please. Luke chapter 15, verse 20, and out of the King James Version, ready begin. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now we see the overarching nature of God in this story. And what we see here is not just a temporary display. You know, I might show a little mercy or I might uh, show a little kindness, but it's uh, certainly not my nature to do so. But friends, it is God's nature. It is the Father's nature because it flows out of His very loving heart. What uh, do we see and how do we see the mercy of God? First of all, there were eyes of mercy. Look at verse number 20. It says, and he arose, came to his father, but he was great way off. His father saw him. His father saw him. These were eyes of mercy. 
Before anybody else could see this son, before anybody else saw this rebellious young man, the father's son, while he was still a great way off, he hadn't even reached the entrance of the village. He was down out in some dusty road, way out of town. And uh, again, a reminder that this uh, father must have been a man of some worth, and he, uh, his son was a long way off, and he came back home. And just because the father is physically not by his son, that doesn't mean that his heart is not with his son. And I think all of us have loved ones that are not close by, and yet, uh, even though they're not close by, our heart is with them. We hope their heart is with us. But this shows us that the Father has been hoping and praying and watching and reminds us of the mercy of God. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, God reminded David that, and reminded Samuel, he said about David, he said, the Lord looketh on the heart. Aren't you glad that God's looking at the heart of mankind? And uh, even though sometimes the outward doesn't look like we want it to and wish it didn't, but thank God he looks at the heart. And a father is always looking for even the smallest, the slightest little maybe a sign of life, spiritual life. Notice what it says he saw. He saw. That must mean he was looking. Nobody else was looking, but the father was looking. Nobody else cared, but the father cared. And when nobody else cares about our life, when nobody cares about whether or not we really make a, a mess or not a mess of our life, thank God God cares. At nighttime and here probably in the daytime, he was waiting for his son, just waiting for any move <clears throat> towards God and any move towards the Father. In James chapter 4, and verse number 8, it says, Draw nigh unto God, <clears throat> and he will draw nigh unto you. Draw nigh to God. That means he's waiting for us to make the move. He's already done everything he can do. He sent his son. He's given us the word. He sent the Holy Spirit. We have everything necessary. The next move is ours. I used to play tennis an awful lot. And uh, in tennis, once you hit that ball, you, it's the other person's plan, then they've got to do something about it. And this is the way God is. God said, I, the ball's in your court. I've already hit it to you. You draw nigh unto me, I'll draw nigh unto you. Some people say, well, I don't feel God. Have you drawn nigh to him? Make a move towards God. You'll watch him. He'll come close to you. There not only were eyes of mercy, number two, there was a heart of mercy. Notice the father had <clears throat> compassion. His heart was moved. <clears throat> Excuse me. A little tickle down there. Even though the prodigal uh, had brought this uh, situation on himself, it still hurt the heart of the father. Why? Because the father was hurt by the misery, the self-destructive misery that the son had gotten into. In Judges chapter 10, verse 16, the Bible says about Israel that God's soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Yes, sinful, but the father saw more as broken. You know, over the years when we talk to sinful people, it's easy to kind of forget that they're just broken. And you know, when I deal with some folks that just are so nasty, so harsh, uh, so wicked, you know, I always remind myself, these are broken people. You know, yes, sinful, but broken. And, you know, when you're a broken person, your heart of compassion reaches out to them. Number three, not only was there eyes of mercy and a heart of mercy, there was a feet of mercy. It says the father ran. He ran. He didn't just shuffle. He didn't just walk. He ran. And let me just say here, folks, 
Middle Eastern noble men, men of uh, high standing, they don't run. <laughs> and maybe his age or maybe his standing, they wouldn't run. In fact, the word run there is the Greek word dramon, which means actually it's the word for racing in a stadium. This father sprinted. <laughs> he couldn't get there fast enough. He didn't want this son to change his mind. He wanted to make sure that he reached out as soon as he could. He sprinted. Now, the prodigal son, I'm sure, came slow. Typically, that's the way the prodigal comes back is slowly. They come back because they're ashamed. They come back because they're under a burden of fear. And I think many people don't want to come to God because they're afraid of what might happen. And yet, if we'll make one move towards God, He will run. That's the amazing thing about God is if we take one step towards God, He meets us more than halfway. There were eyes of mercy. There was a heart of mercy. There were feet of mercy. And number four, thank God, there were arms of mercy. Arms of mercy. It says he fell on his neck. He fell on his neck. I mean, this son comes there. He uh, comes into that village. And uh, this father embraced him. In fact, more than just embraced him, the Bible says he just collapsed into a massive hug and he buried his head in the neck of his son. Folks, this son was not, he hadn't just got out of the shower, trust me. He had been out there with a pig's pen. He had lived in, slept in, rags on. He smelled to high heaven. He, it was a terrible situation. And yet that father just hugged his son. He, uh, uh, he got past all of the stink and all of the dirt. And he embraced his son. I know sometimes we wonder if God would ever forget me. Will God ever care? Would He ever overlook my sin? I remind you, no matter how bad our sin is, if our repentance is genuine, if we are sincere and are coming back to God, God will accept us in all of our sin. Someone once said, never mind what you've done, just repent and come home. Never mind what you've done, just repent and come home. There were arms of mercy And then, number five, there were lips of mercy. It says he kissed him. The the overarching nature of God is seen here, a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. He's a God who overlooks our sin. And this kiss not only assured him that he was welcome, he wouldn't kiss somebody who wasn't welcome. We were overseas. We noticed a, a, a tradition, especially in Italy where we were, is people would kiss each other, really didn't kiss each other, kind of just put their cheek on either side and kind of pretended they were kissing, and uh, kind of a funny little thing, but you know what? The fact is, this kiss was a sign of a welcome, but it was not only a sign of a welcome, it was a seal. It was a seal that uh, he was pardoned. It was a confirmation that all is forgiven, and actually, the word in the Greek there means he kept on kissing. He kept on kissing. He kissed his son on the head. He kissed him on his neck. He kissed him on his cheeks. He kept kissing him. He kissed him on his shoulder. This father was so excited. This was his son who was dead to him, and now he has come home. If you've ever wondered if you could feel loved by God, here, this story reminds us that God will love us. He will kiss us, and we will feel that love of God. I can tell you, I don't It must be a terrible feeling to 
feel like probably nobody loves you. And uh, I honestly never had that feeling in my life. Sometimes some little dart will go through my brain, but for the most part, I, I know that people love me. But I tell you what, there's a lot of people, honestly, that don't ever feel like anybody really loves them. But I will tell you, God is showing us here that He loves us. If we come to Him in mercy, He loves us. And He will kiss us. No, He will kiss and kiss and kiss and kiss. That's the word there, kissing repeatedly. And I tell you one thing, many a time the Holy Spirit has kissed me when I was reading His Word, and all of a sudden He just comes in His sweetness, and I feel His love. Thank God for the kissing of God. Then I want you to notice, not only was God a God of mercy, and mercy forgives, but grace put uh, something, He clothed this son. He came home in rags, and his father not only clothed him, but he celebrated him. Look at verse number 22. And the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Don't just bring any old covering. Bring the best robe. It's an interesting word there. The word is protos, meaning best or top or the highest ranking garment. It is the Greek word stole, which actually we get our word stole from, like a mink stole. And so he said, I want you to bring the highest ranking stole, the garment. Bring the best garment and put it on my son. What does that mean? He was saying that I want the garment that is worn by me at the most prominent of events, the events that only me as the progenitor of the home, as the paternal head of the home would certainly wear. I want you to clothe my son with the very garments that I have. Are you hearing me? The sinner is being covered by the very garments of the father. And then he puts a ring on the hand. And these men who were sitting there listening to the story were thinking, wow, this is incredible. Why would the father do such a thing? To put the ring, this was not just any ring, this was a signet ring. This was a ring that had a crest or a seal stamped into it. And it was what was used when they would seal some official document. Maybe there would be a soft molten wax. They would take this signet ring and they would push it like that. And it was a symbol, an identification of authority. This father was giving this prodigal son not only a robe of righteousness, but he was giving him a seal of authorization that he had full sonship. He was uh, his son. Thank God we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of our redemption. He was saying, everything I have is yours. No, the best that I have is yours. God says to us, folks, we not only have heaven, we have all of heaven's glories. That's why I love reading the book of Revelation. God shows us all those amazing things basically to say it's all yours. It's all yours. I have all of this for you. And that's how we all come to God, folks. Here's this man. He came home with nothing. He didn't even have a backpack. He just come to home with his rags on, smelling like pig slop. And here he came, and his father put a robe on him, put a ring on his hand. He gave him everything. It reminds me of Romans chapter five, 4 and verse 5, where the apostle Paul writes, To him that worketh not, Trust me, this prodigal son had no good works in him, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. Even though I'm ungodly, God can make me justified. That's a 
legal term that says, and we use this little terminology, justified, or just as if I'd never sinned, just as if, as if I'd never committed a crime. You've been legally declared to be without any sin. Justifies not the righteous, not the good, but the ungodly. Why? Because his faith is counted to him for righteousness. Here these false teachers were thinking that their good works were counted for righteousness, and Jesus said, no, it's their faith that counts for righteousness. This man came home barefoot. This man came home with his feet all beat up and hurt, and, this, and that's what this world will do to you. As you journey through this world, you'll get cut and blistered, and it's a terrible thing. But the father said, put the shoes on my son. And they don't put shoes on slaves. They put shoes on sons. The slaves run around barefoot, but the sons, they have shoes. And the amazing grace of God provides wonderful comfort. But I remind all of us here that this comfort comes when we repent, when we have genuine repentance. I like what the late evangelist, the Southern Baptist evangelist Vance Havner, who's a tremendous writer. Anytime you find anything from Vance Havner, read it. It's uh, incredible. He cautions us. He said, you know, and he, Vance Mr. Havner wrote this back probably in the 40s or 50s. He said, if they'd had a social gospel in the days of the prodigal son, I say again, if they'd had a social gospel in the days of the prodigal son, somebody would have given him a bed and a sandwich, and he would have never gone home. I remind you that, folks, the father did not jump into the pig pen with the son. That would have been tragic. This son had to realize his sin, and God used the pig pen to draw him to repentance. By the way, I think a good reminder of us who love our children so much, but you can't go down into the pig pen. They've got to repent. And then when they repent, uh, you can put the robe on them. Salvation, by the way, is a robe of righteousness. He came home in rags, and his father not only clothed him, he celebrated him. Number two, he came home hungry, and his father not only fed him, but feasted him. Look at verse 23. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. Fatted calf, actually, it's a word for corn or grain. So this was a corn-fed veal right here. I'm talking about a prime piece of steak. Not, by the way, this was, uh, they didn't eat much meat that day, for, so for them to eat any meat was special. But to eat a corn-fed or grain-fed uh, animal here, this was something you reserved for a dignitary. This young man was being treated like he was some kind of big uh, dignitary, like a king or a queen or something. And it was amazing. I mean, this guy had gone from the pig pen to a palace. While he was in the pig pen, he was a prince in the pig pen. But thank God he came back and became a real prince. Verse 24, for this my son was dead. This my son was dead. This was not just a, uh, a colloquialism. It was actually uh, declared to be so. Maybe the father did it, or certainly the community did it. Because remember, this son had basically said, I want my inheritance, and I want it now. He was probably a teenager, and he wanted the inheritance now. And, you know, even now we would say, you want your inheritance? I'm not even dead. And you want your inheritance now? But he didn't want just his inheritance. He wanted the living of the father. He wanted his source of livelihood. He basically was saying, I really wish you were dead because I have a lifestyle. I have something I want to do with my life and I want it. I, and I want what's owed me. 
even though it really wasn't owed him, but he thought there was a, an owing to him. And so basically, he was wishing his son, his father was dead with such ungratefulness and such impertinence. The community just said, that's it, man, this guy, we write it. They wrote him off. They said, we, don't, we no longer even acknowledge him. He's dead. He's dead to us. They didn't speak of him. They did not speak of him. Jesus was dead. He was gone. He had been declared dead. And so when this father said, this my son was dead, he was totally accurate. And these men listening to the story understood that. This was a village economy. He had been, he had so done things so wrong. He said he is alive again. <laughs> and when a person gets saved, they go from death to life. He was lost. Yes, lost without Jesus Christ, found, and you better be thankful God finds us because we never found him. We never even wanted him. We didn't seek for him. We're told in Romans, nobody seeks the Lord out. He seeks us. If we had not, if he had not loved us, I would have never loved him. He loves me. It says he was found and they began to be merry. I mean to tell you, they are just having a big time there. Now, I want to remind you that this son didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. He just was given all of this. The mercy of God hugged him. The mercy of God saw him. The mercy of God ran to him. The mercy of God kissed him. But the grace of God gave him a robe. The grace of God gave him a ring. The mercy of God doesn't give us what, what we should have, what we deserve. But the grace of God gives us what we don't deserve. Thank God for His mercy. And then at the end of verse 24, they began to be, to be merry. It just says they began. It doesn't say they ever stopped. They began. And that's what heaven is. Folks, heaven is just you began to be merry and you just stay merry. Amen. It's just heaven. It just <clears throat> You just keep being merry because, hallelujah, I was a prodigal. I was lost. I was in a pig pen. And it might be a pig pen in the, the dregs of uh, the city in a skid row at a, some flop house someplace, or it might be the skid row of the penthouse. But the fact is, it is still a terrible place to be without Jesus Christ. But the celebration of God's grace and that continued the ruin of this young man, the rejoicing uh, now of this young man. Now, I wish we could end there with this story. It'd be a great place to end the story. It'd be a great place just to simply say, what a story. But honestly, <clears throat> the main part of the story now comes. Because remember who the, the audience is. We're talking to false teachers named Pharisees by their doctrinal beliefs, Sadducees, scribes. These false teachers had a serious problem. They felt like you could earn your way to heaven. They were true legalists. Not just somebody who was conservative in their views. No, they were truly feeling like their keeping of the law could help them go to heaven. And so he looked at them and he said, now let me tell you the rest of the story. If he had been Paul Harvey, he would have said, now the rest of the story. And here's what it is. There's one person in this whole story we haven't talked about. We talked about the son. We talked about the everybody rejoicing. We talked about the father, but we have not talked about the elder brother. And so now we're going to see the elder brother, a stinging reproof to these false teachers, the reproof. Verse 25, now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, 
word there means a servant child or servant boy, and asked what these things meant. I mean, a full-blown celebration is on. Now, they don't just throw that in a few minutes, not even in a few hours. We're talking it took a few days, really, to get that all together. And I mean, by that time, the entire village was just, they were dancing, and there was singing, and there was music, and there was food, and there was rejoicing. Where has the elder brother been for one day, or two days, or three days? Well, this father had a vast estate, and uh, the son had taken a while to come back. And by the time he comes back, he's all out of it. I mean, he didn't get the memo. And, or if he did get the memo, he's wondering what in the world. And by the time he comes back, the, the party is all on. He is stunned. He is shocked when he hears from one of the servants that this is all a great party for his deadbeat brother. Are you kidding me? My deadbeat brother, my loser brother, you were going to celebrate for him? I've never gotten a party for myself. Look at verse 27. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, the father now is talking to the elder brother. Thy father, thy brother is come. And thy father, excuse me, the servant is speaking. And they said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was so happy that his brother was home, he couldn't believe his ears of the, the beauty of his father's great love and mercy and grace. No, verse 28, and he was angry. And he would not go in. Therefore came out his father and invited him in. This elder brother was livid. He would not be a part of this party at all, for sure. And his warped morality just reinforced his bitterness. He was a good guy, at least outwardly. And he did have some redeemable qualities, at least from the outside. And I have wondered about this elder brother because, honestly, it's kind of... It kind of makes me mad what this younger brother did. I, it irritates me in this story. And I actually kind of like the elder brother because he was faithful. And he, uh, he, he seemed like he did take care of what he was supposed to do. I've wondered about what's going on. And sometimes I, I feel like a Pharisee myself. I say, man, Lord, I, I don't understand this whole thing. But as I studied it this time, I realized there were three big issues with this elder brother. Number one, he claimed his own virtue. Verse 29, he answering to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. <laughs> well, okay. And yet, that probably was mostly accurate. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Now, this uh, young, this elder brother had worked very hard, and there was a ring of truth to it. Everybody listening probably got it. Yeah, it probably is basically true. And I'm sure it sounded very true in the ears of this elder brother. But he fell into one big common trap that good people often fall into. He was comparing his righteousness with the righteousness of his younger brother, not with perfection. He was comparing him with his brother, and in that regard, he was so much better than his brother. And that was true. He was much better than his brother, but he wasn't perfect, and he wasn't what he should be. But in comparison, he was good. And that's what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. He was saying, hey, yeah, you're good guys. 
Yeah, I agree. On the outside, you got it all together. And really, compared to the average Joe down the street, you've got it together. But I will tell you, your, compar- your measuring stick is wrong. I remember talking with uh, a person once and, uh, about the Lord, and I asked them, I said, Are you, have you ever sinned? They, said, they looked at me and I thought, no, I don't think I ever have. You know, I, I never have anybody say that. I, I've heard people say, they'll say, well, you know, I've, yeah, I've, I've done, yeah, you know, I've had some bad attitudes or maybe lied a little bit. But, but I mean, I, this person said, no, I, I don't think I've ever sinned. And I said, now, <laughs> well, you surely have done something wrong. Well, I'm not sure. And uh, I said, okay, tell me, tell me this. If you were to stand before God in heaven, could you say, I'm just as righteous and I'm just as holy as Jesus? And they thought, they said, well, no, I couldn't say that. <laughs> okay, there we go. So we came around the corner on them, but you know what? The fact is, that's, and that is our standard. The standard's not the younger brother. The standard is Jesus Christ. And this elder brother had compared himself to his younger brother. And all of us might acknowledge the fact that if we've been kept from sin, but folks, it's only by God's mercy. In Lamentations 3.22, it is the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. I will tell you this, if you have a good life, you should be humbly grateful and thankful, but certainly never proud. Certainly never proud that I've somehow achieved something. No, it is only of the Lord's mercies that I've not been consumed by sin. He claimed his own virtue. Number two, secondly, he complained of his father. He not only claimed his own virtue, but he complained of his father. Verse 29, and he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither trans." I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Um, you never gave me even a kid or a goat kid or a, uh, the offspring of a goat, let alone a fatted calf. I mean, he was acknowledging that goat is the least desirable of all meat. And I will tell you, I've tasted the goat a few times, and I will tell you that's about right. This, uh, this elder brother was saying, you haven't even given me goat meat, <laughs> and, and, uh, but let alone uh, a beautiful grain-fed veal. <clears throat> and he said, you, ne- you never gave me a party. You never fed me. And he said, so that I could have a party with my friends. And as I read that this time, I was like, why are you so obsessed with your friends? Notice he kept saying, my friends. I wanted to be with my friends, too. My friends, I mean, like, like what, is, what is the deal with you and your friends? You have the Father here. You've got the family of God, and you are so obsessed with your friends. There's something wrong with this guy. Unbelievable. But then, of all things, this elder son, in essence, says this. Father, honestly, I don't need to ask you for forgiveness because I've never done a thing wrong. Actually, you need to ask forgiveness of me for not being a good enough father. That's exactly what he was saying. Unbelievable outrage of hypocrisy that the elder brother thought that the father needed to repent of his sin. And that's honestly these hypocritical Pharisees. I read a cute story this week of an extremely proud young man who walked into a restaurant, 
looking for his friend. <clears throat> Immediately noticed two beautiful blonde young ladies near the door who appeared to be checking him out. Just then he, they looked at each other, those two beautiful young ladies looked at each other, and at the same time they exclaimed, Nine, and began to giggle. This prideful young man puffed out his chest, big smile on his face, walked over his friend. He said, you won't, you won't believe just what happened to me. I walked in this room, and those two chicks over there looked at me and said, Nine, I'm a nine. His friend started cracking up and said, dude, they're from Germany. They don't speak English. And nine means no. As in no way, you, you, are, you are a zero. He claimed his own virtue. He complained to his father that unbelievable hypocrisy. He was so proud that he felt like the father should have confessed to him. But thirdly, he criticized his brother. Maybe if he had only claimed his own virtue, but then he complained to his father. But unbelievably, he criticized his brother. Verse 30, as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living, not all of it, but he was over-exaggerating, with harlots, that's all he did, which probably wasn't true, but he maybe did part of it. Thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And notice he would not even call him a brother. Thy son, your son. Here again, he's throwing it back on the father. This is your son, not my brother, because my brother would be holy. My brother would be good. My brother would have never done something like this. This is just your son, arrogantly rejecting his brother, exaggerating his faults. Now, there's one final scene to this story, and if I had been the father, I would have given that son the boot. But this father shows his incredible nature of grace and mercy. Verse 31, he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. You are the eldest son. You are deserving of uh, twice as much as anyone else. And you certainly will get that. Verse 20, 32, but it was meet that we should make merry and be glad. This was the appropriate thing, the right thing. Because thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. The father goes out to talk with his son. No, plead with his son. No, he actually just reached out to his son in such mercy without chastising him. Jesus was often so kind to people who were so mean to him. When he called him his son, actually, it's the Greek word techna, which means my son. Kind of like in the Hispanic culture, they say mija or mijo, it's, this is my son. And here he is, he said, my son. Here he is showing his great heart of God, even towards a hypocrite. Notice verse 32, it was meat. It was the proper, appropriate thing to rejoice. I didn't, we didn't have an option. The grace of God, the, the situation demanded that we rejoice. Why is that? Because this was a symbol of salvation, and salvation is a, a great thing to rejoice about. As I was reading this, I thought of Psalm 85 and verse 10, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. We have to rejoice because mercy and truth are now friends, best friends. Truth says, 
you are a sinful person, you must go to hell. Mercy says we must accept the blood of Jesus to cover that sin. Righteousness says, look at all the sin that this person has done. But the peace of God says, yes, but I give peace to those who repent of their sin. Mercy and truth have finally found a way to reconcile because of the blood of Christ. Until the blood of Christ, there was no reconciliation of mercy and truth. There was no reconciliation of righteousness and peace. But now they have kissed each other. And so it is the reason why we can rejoice. We must rejoice because that's what's happening here. This is heaven's joy. It is incredible. And so Jesus tells the story. He looks at these Pharisees, and the story stops. There's no ending to this story. What happened to the end of this story? He just stopped because Jesus was putting it back in their lap. You can write the final paragraph on this story. You can write it, religious leaders. You who know the Bible but don't know the Father. You who know tradition but you don't know God. You can write the last chapter. Because here's what the last chapter should read. And these Pharisees, these false teachers, realizing their error and the unbelieving mercy and grace of God for their self-righteousness, fell on their knees and repented and asked forgiveness of the Father. The elder brother said, Father, forgive me. I've been wrong. That's the way the story should be written out. But it doesn't end that way. This particular story takes place just a few weeks before Jesus is crucified. The Pharisees wrote the last paragraph. They went home and talked about that story. They realized that he was laying it on them and he was reminding them that they too needed to be saved just like the wicked younger brother. But here's the way they ended up writing the story. They then, the elder brother then, took a nail and took a hammer and they beat it into the hands of the Father and they crucified their own Father and killed Him and went on their way saying, we are righteous and they killed their own Father. That's the actual end of the story. Incredible. He'd given them all that opportunity. And yet at that moment, they said, I'll not have any of that. It's our righteousness that gets us to heaven. Let me tell you one final story when we done here this morning. You may have heard this story. It comes out of Ernest Hemingway's book, Capital of the World. He wrote about a father in Spain who had a son named Paco. Because of the son's extraordinary rebellion... He and his son were estranged. The son was terribly wicked and uh, ungrateful. He had to leave the home. The father was grieved but uh, understood what had to happen. But for years, the father hoped the best for the son and 
looked for the son with no results. Finally, in desperation, the father placed an ad in a Madrid newspaper. The ad read, Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me at the newspaper office at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Love, your father. Well, Paco is a rather common name in Spain. And Hemingway wrote that when the father arrived the next morning, there were 600 young men, all named Paco, waiting and hoping to receive the forgiveness of their fathers. And I will tell you, there is such a hunger in all of our hearts to be received because the truth is all of us are those younger brothers. We've all sinned. But I thank God there is a heavenly Father who invites us. And He's advertised it. He's got a, given us a book. Let's receive Him. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.